Chapter One of Hoof and Claw. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Hoof and Claw by Charles Roberts. The Bear That Thought He Was a Dog. The gaunt black mother lifted her head from nuzzling happily at the velvet fur of her little one. The cub was but twenty-four hours old and engrossed every emotion of her savage heart. But her ear had caught the sound of heavy footsteps coming up the mountain. They were confident, fearless footsteps, taking no care whatever to disguise themselves. So she knew at once. They were the steps of the only creature that presumed to go so noisily through the great silences. Her heart pounded with anxious suspicion. She gave the cub a reassuring lick, deftly set it aside with her great paws, and thrust her head forth cautiously from the door of the den. She saw a man, a woodsman in brownish-gray homespuns and heavy leg-boots, and with a gun over his shoulder, slouching up along the faintly marked trail which led close past her doorway. Her own great tracks on the trail had been obliterated that morning by a soft and thawing fall of belated spring snow, the robin snow, as it is called in New Brunswick. And the man, absorbed in picking his way by this unfamiliar route over the mountain, had no suspicion that he was in danger of trespassing. But the bear, with that tiny black form at the bottom of the den, filling her whole horizon, could not conceive that the man's approach had any other purpose than to rob her of her treasure. She ran back to the little one, nosed it gently into a corner, and anxiously poured some dry leaves half over it. Then, her eyes aflame with rage and fear, she betook herself once more to the entrance, and crouched there, motionless, to await the coming of the enemy. The man swung up the hill noisily, grunting now and again as his foothold slipped on the slushy, moss-covered stones. He fetched a huge breath of satisfaction as he gained a little strip of level ledge, perhaps a dozen feet in length, with a scrubby spruce bush growing at the other end of it. Behind the bush he made out what looked as if it might be the entrance to a little cave. Interested at once, he strode forward to examine it. At the first stride, a towering black form, jaws agape and claws outstretched, crashed past the fir bush and hurled itself upon him. A man brought up in the backwoods learns to think quickly, or rather to think and act at the same instant. Even as the great beast sprang, the man's gun leaped to its place, and he fired. His charge was nothing more than heavy duck shot, intended for some low-flying flock of migrant geese or brant. But at this close range, some seven or eight feet only, it tore through its target like a heavy mushroom bullet, and with a stopping force that halted the animal's charge in mid-air like the blow of a steam-hammer. She fell in her tracks, a heap of huddled fur and grinning teeth. Gee, remarked the man, that was a close call. He ejected the empty shell and slipped in a fresh cartridge. Then he examined critically the warm heap of fur and teeth. Perceiving that his victim was a mother, and also that her fur was rusty and ragged after the winter's sleep, sentiment and sound utilitarianism of the backwoods stirred within him in a fine blend. Poor old beggar, he muttered, 
she must have a baby in yonder hole that accounts for her kind of hasty ways most a pity i had to shoot her just now when she's out of season and her pelt's not worth the job of stripping it entering the half-darkness of the cave he quickly discovered the cub in its ineffectual hiding place young as it was when he picked it up it whimpered with terror and struck out with its baby paws recognizing the smell of an enemy the man grinned indulgently at this display of spirit gee but you're chock full of ginger said he and then being of an understanding heart and an experimental turn of mind he laid the cub down and returned to the body of the mother with his knife he cut off several big handfuls of the shaggy fur and stuffed it into his pockets then he rubbed his hands his sleeves and the breast of his coat on the warm body there now said he returning to the cave once more picking up the little one i've made ye an orphan to be sure but i'm going to soothe your feelings all i can ye must make believe as how i'm your mammy till i can find ye a better one pillowed in the crook of his captor's arm and with his nose snuggled into a bunch of his mother's fur the cub ceased to wonder at a problem too hard for him and dozed off into an uneasy sleep and the man pleased with his new plaything went gently that he might not disturb the slumber now it chanced that at jabe smith's farm on the other side of the mountain there had just been a humble tragedy jabe smith's dog a long-haired brown retriever had been bereaved of her newborn puppies six of them she had borne but five had been straightway taken from her and drowned for jabe though compassionate of heart had wisely decided that compassion would be too costly at the price of having his little clearing quite overrun with dogs for two days in her box in a corner of the dusky stable the brown mother had wistfully poured out her tenderness upon the one remaining puppy and then when she had run into the house for a moment to snatch a bite of breakfast one of smith's big red oxen had strolled into the stable and blundered a great splay hoof into the box that had happened in the morning and all day the brown mother had moped whimpering and whining about the stable casting long distraught glances at the box in the corner which she was unwilling either to approach or to quite forsake when her master returned and came and looked in hesitatingly at the stable door the brown mother saw the small furry shape in the crook of his arm her heart yearned to it at once she fawned upon the man coaxingly lifted herself with her forepaws upon his coat and reached up till she could lick the sleeping cub somewhat puzzled jabe smith went and looked into the box then he understood if you want the cub jenny he's yourn all right and it saves me a heap of bother driven by his hunger and reassured by the smell of the handful of fur which the woodsman left with him the cub promptly accepted his adoption she seemed very small this new mother and she had a disquieting odor but the supreme thing in the cub's eyes was the fact she had something that assuaged his appetite the flavor to be sure was something new and novelty is a poor recommendation to babes of whatever kindred but all the cub really asked of milk was that it should be warm and abundant and soon being assiduously licked and fondled and nursed till his little belly was round as a melon he forgot the cave on the mountainside and accepted jabe smith's barn as a quite normal abode for small bears jinny was natively a good mother had her own pups been left to her 
she would have lavished every care and tenderness upon them during the allotted span of weeks and then with inexorable decision she would have weaned and put them away for their soul's good but somewhere in her sturdy doggish makeup there was a touch of temperament of something almost approaching imagination to which this strange foster child of hers appealed as no ordinary puppy could ever have done she loved the cub with a certain extravagance and gave herself up to it utterly even her beloved master fell into a secondary place and his household of which she had hitherto held herself the guardian now seemed to her to exist merely for the benefit of this black prodigy which she imagined herself to have produced the little one's astounding growth for the cubs of the bear are born very small and so must lose no time in making up arrears in statue was an affair for which she took all credit to herself and she never thought of weaning him till he himself decided the matter by preferring the solid dainties of the kitchen when she could no longer nurse him however she remained his devoted comrade playmate and satellite and the cub who was a roguish but amiable soul repaid her devotion by imitating her in all ways possible the bear being by nature a very silent animal her noisy barking seemed always to stir his curiosity and admiration but his attempts to imitate it resulted in nothing more than an occasional grunting woof this throaty syllable his only utterance besides the whimper which signaled the frequent demands of his appetite came to be accepted as his name and he speedily learned to respond to it jabe smith as has already been pointed out was a man of sympathetic discernment in the course of no long time his discernment told him that woof was growing up under the delusion that he was a dog it was perhaps a convenience in some ways that he should not know he was a bear he might be the more secure from troublesome ancestral suggestions but as he appeared to claim all the privileges of his foster-mother jabe smith's foreseeing eye considered the time not far distant when the sturdy and demonstrative little animal would grow to a giant of six or seven hundred pounds in weight and still no doubt continued to think he was a dog jabe smith began to discourage the demonstrativeness of jinny trusting her example would have the desired effect upon the cub in particular he set himself to remove from her mind any lingering notion that she would do for a lap-dog he did not want any such notion as that to get itself established in woof's young brain and also he broke poor jinny at once of her affectionate habit of springing up and planting her forepaws upon his breast that seemed to him a demonstration of ardor which if practiced by a seven hundred pound bear might be a little overwhelming jabe smith had no children to complicate the situation his family consisted merely of mrs smith a small but varying number of cats and kittens jinny and woof upon mrs smith and the cats woof's delusion came to have such effect that they too regarded him as a dog the cats scratched him when he was little and with equal confidence they scratched him when he was big mrs smith as long as she was in a good humor allowed him the freedom of the house coddled him with kitchen tidbits and laughed when his affectionate but awkward bulk got in the way of her outbursts of mopping or her paroxysms of sweeping 
but when storm was in the air she regarded him no more than a black poodle at the heels of the more nimble jinny he would be chased in ignominy from the kitchen door with mrs jabe's angry broom thwacking at the spot where nature had forgotten to give him a tail at such time jabe smith was usually to be seen smoking contemplatively on the woodpile and regarding the abashed fugitives with sympathy this matter of a tail was one of the obstacles which woof had to encounter in playing the part of a dog he was indefatigable in his efforts to wag his tail finding no tail to wag he did the best he could with his whole massive hindquarters to the discomfiture of all that got in the way yet for all of his clumsiness his goodwill was so unchanging that none of the farmyard kindreds had any dread of him saving only the pig in his sty the pig being an incurable skeptic by nature and moreover possessed of a keen and discriminating nose persisted in believing him to be a bear and a lover of pork and would squeal nervously at the sight of him the rest of the farmyard folk accepted him at his own illusion and appeared to regard him as a gigantic species of dog and so with nothing to mar his content but the occasional paroxysms of mrs jabe's broom wolf led the sheltered life and was glad to be a dog it was not until the autumn of his third year that wolf began to experience any discontent then without knowing why it seemed to him that there was something lacking in jabe smith's farmyard even in jabe smith himself and in jinny his foster mother the smell of the deep woods beyond the pasture fields drew him strangely he grew restless something called to him something stirred in his blood and would not let him be still and one morning when jabe smith came out in the first pink and amber of daybreak to fodder the horses he found that woof had disappeared he was sorry but he was not surprised he tried to explain to the dejected jinny that they would probably have the truant back again before long but he was no adept in the language of dogs and jinny failing for once to understand remained disconsolate once clear of the outermost stump pastures and burnt lands woof pushed on feverishly the urge that drove him forward directed him toward the half barren rounded shoulders of old sugar-loaf where the blueberries at this season were ripe and bursting with juice here in the gold green windy open belly deep in the low blue jeweled bushes woof feasted greedily but he felt it was not berries that he had come for when however he came upon a glossy young she-bear her fine black muzzle bedaubed with berry juice his eyes were open to the object of his quest perhaps he thought she too was a dog but if so she was in his eyes a dog of incomparable charm more dear to him though a new acquaintance than even little brown jinny his kind mother had ever been the stranger though at first somewhat puzzled by woof's violent efforts to wag a non-existent tail apparently found her big wooer sympathetic for the next few weeks all through the golden dreamy autumn of the new brunswick woods the two roamed together and for the time woof forgot the farm his master jinny and even mrs jabe's impetuous broom but about the time of the first sharp frosts when the ground was crisp with the new fallen leaves woof and his mate 
began to lose interest in each other. She amiably forgot him and wandered off by herself, intent on nothing so much as satisfying her appetite, which had increased amazingly. It was necessary that she should load her ribs with fat to last her through her long winter's sleep in some cave or hollow tree. And as for Woof, once more he thought of Jabe Smith and Jinny, and the kind familiar farmyard, and the delectable scraps from the kitchen, and the comforting smell of fried pancakes. What was the chill and lonely wilderness to him, a dog? He turned from grubbing up an ant stump, and headed straight back for home. When he got there, he found but a chimney standing naked and blackened over a tangle of charred ruins. A forest fire, some ten days back, had swept past that way, cutting a mile-wide swath through the woods and clean wiping out Jabe Smith's little homestead. It being too late in the year to begin rebuilding, the woodsman had betaken himself to the settlements for the winter, trusting to begin in the spring the slow repair of his fortunes. For a day he wandered disconsolately over and about the ruins, whining and sniffing and filled with a sense of injury at being thus deserted. How glad he would have been to hear even the squeal of his enemy, the pig, or to feel the impetuous broom of Mrs. Jabe harassing his haunches. But even such poor consolation seemed to have passed beyond his ken. On the second day, being very hungry, he gave up all hope of bacon scraps, and set off to the woods to forage once more for himself. As long as the actual winter held off, there was no great difficulty in this foraging. There were roots to be grubbed up grubs worms and beetles already sluggish with the cold to be found under stones and logs and anthills to be ravished there were also the nests of bees and wasps pungent but savory he was an expert in hunting the shy wood mice lying patiently in wait for them beside their holes and obliterating them as they came out with a lightning stroke of his great paw but when the hard frosts came sealing up the moist turf under a crust of steel, and the snows burying the mouse holes under three or four feet of white fluff. Then he was hard put to it for a living. Every day or two in his distress he would revisit the clearing and wander sorrowfully among the snow-clad ruins, hoping against hope that his vanished friends would presently return. It was in one of the earliest of these melancholy visits that Woof first encountered a male of his own species, and showed how far he was from any consciousness of kinship. A yearling heifer of Jabe Smith's, which had escaped from the fire and fled far into the wilderness, chanced to find her way back. For several weeks she had managed to keep alive on such dead grass as she could paw down to through the snow, and on such twigs of birch and poplar as she could manage to chew. Now a mere ragged bag of bones, she stood in the snow beyond the ruins, her eyes wild with hunger and despair. Her piteous mooings caught the ear of a hungry old he-bear, which was hunting in the woods nearby. He came at once hopefully. One stroke of his armed paw on the unhappy heifer's neck put a period to her pains, and the savage old prowler fell to his meal. But as a chance, Woof also had heard from a little further off that lowing of the disconsolate heifer. To him it had come as a voice from the good old days of friendliness and plenty and impetuous brooms, 
and he had hastened toward the sound with new hope in his heart. He came just in time to see, from the edge of the clearing, the victim stricken down. One lesson Wolf had well learned from his foster mother, and that was the obligation resting upon every honest dog to protect his master's property. The unfortunate heifer was undoubtedly the property of Jabe Smith. In fact, Woof knew her as a young beast who had often shaken her budding horns at him. Filled with righteous wrath, he rushed forward and hurled himself upon the slayer. The latter was one of those morose old males who, having forgotten or outgrown the comfortable custom of hibernation, are doomed to range the wilderness all winter. His temper, therefore, was raw enough in any case. At this flagrant interference with his own lawful kill, it flared to fury. His assailant was bigger than he, better nourished, and far stronger, but for some minutes he put up a fight, which for swift ferocity almost daunted the hitherto unawakened spirit of Woof. A glancing blow of the stranger's, however, on the side of Woof's snout, only the remnant of a spent stroke, but enough to produce an effect on that most sensitive center of a bear's dignity, and there was a sudden change in the conditions of the duel. Woof, for the first time in his life, saw red. It was a veritable berserk rage. This virgin outburst of his, his adversary simply went down like a rag baby before it, and was mauled to abject submission in the smother of the snow inside of half a minute. Feigning death, which indeed was no great feigning for him at that moment, he succeeded in deceiving the unsophisticated Woof, who drew back upon his haunches to consider his triumph. In that second, the vanquished one writhed nimbly to his feet and slipped off apologetically through the snow. And Woof, placated by his victory, made no attempt to follow. The ignominies of Mrs. Jabe's broom were wiped out. When Woof's elation had somewhat subsided, he laid himself down beside the carcass of the dead heifer. As the wind blew on that day, this corner of the ruins was a nook of shelter. Moreover, the body of the red heifer, dead and dilapidated though it was, formed in his mind a link with a happy past. It was Jabe Smith's property, and he got a certain comfort from lying beside it and guarding it for his master. As the day wore on and his appetite grew more and more insistent, in an absent-minded way he began to gnaw at the good red meat beside him. At first, to be sure, this gave him a guilty conscience, and from time to time he would glance up nervously, as if apprehending the broom. But soon immunity brought confidence. His conscience ceased to trouble him, and the comfort derived from the nearness of the red heifer was increased exceedingly. As long as the heifer lasted, Woof stuck faithfully to his post as guardian, and longer indeed. For nearly two days after the remains had quite disappeared, save for horns and hoofs, and such bones as his jaws could not crush, he lingered. And then at last, urged by a ruthless hunger, and sorrowfully convinced that there was nothing more he could do for Jabe, or Jabe for him, he set off again on his wanderings. About three weeks later, forlorn of heart and exigent of belly, Woof found himself in a part of the forest where he had never been before. But someone else had been there before him was a broad trail, just such as Jabe Smith and his wood sled used to make. Here were the prints of horses' hooves. Woof's heart bounded hopefully. 
He hurried along down the trail, and then a faint, delectable savor, drawn across the sharp still air, met his nostrils. Pork and beans, oh, assuredly! He paused for a second to sniff the fragrance again, and then lurched onwards at a rolling gallop. He rounded a turn of the trail, and there before him stood a logging camp. To Woof, a human habitation stood for friendliness and food and shelter. He approached, therefore, without hesitation. There was no sign of life about the place, except for the smoke rising liberally from the stovepipe chimney. The door was shut, but Woof knew that doors frequently opened if one scratched at them and whined persuasively. He tried it and then stopped to listen for an answer. The answer came, a heavy, comfortable snore from within the cabin. It was mid-morning, and the camp cook, having got his work done up, was sleeping in his bunk the while the dinner was boiling. Woof scratched and whined again. Then, growing impatient, he reared himself on his haunches in order to scratch with both paws at once. His luck favored him, for he happened to scratch on the latch. It lifted. The door swung open suddenly, and he half fell across the threshold. He had not intended so abrupt an entrance, and he paused, peering with diffidence and hope into the homely gloom. The snoring had stopped suddenly. At the rear of the cabin Woof made out a large, round, startled face, fringed with scanty red whiskers and a mop of red hair staring at him from over the edge of an upper bunk. Woof had hoped to find Jabe Smith there, but this was a stranger, so he suppressed his impulse to rush in and wallow delightedly before the bunk. Instead of that, he came only halfway over the threshold and stood there, making those violent contortions which he believed to be wagging his tail. To a cool observer of even the most limited intelligence, it would have been clear that these contortions were intended to be conciliatory. But the cook of Conroy's camp was taken by surprise, and he was not a cool observer. In fact, he was frightened. A gun was leaning against the wall below the bunk. A large, hairy hand stole forth, reached down, and clutched the gun. Woof wagged his haunches more coaxingly than ever, and took another hopeful step forward. Up went the gun. There was a blue-white spurt, and the report clashed deafeningly within the narrow quarters. The cook was a poor shot at any time, and at this moment he was at a special disadvantage. The bullet went close over the top of Woof's head and sang waspishly across the clearing. Woof turned and looked over his shoulder to see what the man had fired at. If anything was hit, he wanted to go and get it and fetch it for the man, as Jabe and Jinny had taught him to do. But he could see no result of the shot. He whined depreciatingly and ventured all the way into the cabin. The cook felt desperately for another cartridge. There was none to be found. He remembered that they were all in the chest by the door. He crouched back in the bunk, making himself as small as possible, and hoping that a certain hunk of bacon on the bench by the stove might divert the terrible stranger's attention and give him a chance to make a bolt for the door. But Woof had not forgotten either the good example of Jinny or the discipline of Mrs. Jabe's broom. Far be it from him to help himself without leave, but he was very hungry. Something must be done to win the favor of the strangely unresponsive, round-faced man in the bunk. 
Looking about him anxiously, he espied a pair of greasy cowhide larrigans lying on the floor near the door. Picking one up in his mouth, after the manner of his retriever foster mother, he carried it over and laid it down as a humble offering beside the bunk. Now the cook, though he had been undeniably frightened, was by no means a fool. This touching gift of one of his own larrigans opened his eyes and his heart. Such a bear, he was assured, could harbor no evil intentions. He sat up in his bunk. Hello, said he. What you doing here, sonny? What do you want of me anyhow? The huge black beast wagged his hindquarters frantically and wallowed on the floor in his fawning delight at the sound of a human voice. Seems to think he's a kind of a dog, muttered the cook thoughtfully. And then the light of certain remembered rumors broke upon his memory. I'll be jiggered, said he, if tain't that there tame bar Jabe Smith over to East Fork used to have afore he was a burnt out. Climbing confidently from the bunk, he proceeded to pour a generous portion of molasses over the contents of the scrap pail, because he knew that bears had a sweet tooth. When the choppers and drivers came trooping in for dinner, they were somewhat taken aback to find a huge bear sleeping beside the stove. As the dangerous-looking slumberer seemed to be in the way, none of the men cared to sit too close to him. To their amazement, the cook smacked the mighty hindquarters with the flat of his hand and bundled him unceremoniously into a corner. "'Pears to think he's some kind of a dog,' explained the cook. "'So I let him come along in for company. He'll fetch your larrigans and socks and things for you, and it makes the camp a sight homier, having something like a cat or a dog about.' right you are agreed the boss but what was that noise we heard along about an hour ago did you shoot anything oh that was just a little misunderstanding before him and me got acquainted explained the cook with a trace of embarrassment we made it up all right end of the bear that thought he was a dog